In this episode, I'm joined by Steve James, host of the Guru Viking podcast and creator of the Movement Koan Method. Steve has extensive experience in elite athletic performance, contemplative and spiritual disciplines, extreme outdoor survival, the arts and human behavior. In this conversation, Steve and I talk about his goals and learnings in the Guru Viking podcast, Steve's upbringing and how he got started in meditation, his approach towards spiritual practice, the intersection between movement and meditation, the movement koan method and more. Now, without further ado, Steve James. Hello, Steve. Welcome to the Innercraft podcast. Hello, Andres. Thank you so much for joining. I'm very glad to have you here. I'm sure, well, myself and I'm sure most of our listen listeners have been following you and your podcast for a while, uh, getting a lot of inspiration and motivation from all the great people you've had in your podcast and from yourself as well. So again, thank you for that. Very excited to have you here. Well, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course, of course. So to start, I think would be, well, I have already shared uh, your background with the audience, but maybe to start, since most likely people know you for your podcast, the Guru Viking podcast, would be interesting to hear a little bit more about it. I'm curious about how, what was your vision getting started in the podcast, why you were doing it and how that vision has evolved over, over time. Why are you doing it now? And what's the vision going forward? Oh, yes, thank you. Well, Guru Viking podcast, um, as you pointed out, it's an interview podcast. So the format is I interview the guests, whoever they may be. And the sorts of guests I have on um, are within the general sphere, I think, of contemplative uh, studies or contemplative uh, activities like meditation, uh, religion, uh, etc. So some of them are religious practitioners or religious teachers, you know, like Zen teachers, Buddhist teachers, Sufi teachers, that kind of thing. Um, some of them are scholars or both, you know, they can be both. Or, you know, some of them are scientists who are studying that uh, area or attempting to innovate technologies or things in that area. So it's that sort of range of people. So it's a desire to, it began from um, a desire to put some of the conversations that I was having personally uh, out there and expose people to these remarkable, um, fascinating individuals in, in the field of you know, contemplation, religion, philosophy, science, etc. Uh, that's That was the vision. And uh, uh, so I started with some people that I knew. Per and in fact, throughout the podcast, often I will interview people that I've met personally, um, etc. And uh, the vision has remained more or less the same, I would say. Uh, just, I'm a very curious person. I find people who are involved in these fields very interesting, and I find the subject interesting. And those are two different things. I'm interested in the subjects, yes, but I'm also interested in the kinds of people that are doing those things. So... Uh, I, I just keep following my curiosity and uh, trying to, uh, you know, ask good questions. And I try to listen well, and you know, therefore give the person a good platform to have a great discussion. So that's that's the basic premise, I think, of Guru Viking podcast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing that. And I bet in all of those conversations, you've learned quite a ton um, from the subjects and from the people as well. 
Would it be so, possible to, you know, categorize your main learnings or like, I'm curious to hear what you learn. It's so much, you know, so many interviews I know, so probably hard to pinpoint specific things, but in general, what are sort of the broad topics or areas of learning that you, you feel you've had? Yes. Well, many of my guests are experts in their field and in their areas. And so, of course, <laughs> listening closely to somebody and perhaps even studying their materials in preparation for the interview, uh, one can't help but absorb information. So I've learned lots of information about these areas and fields. Uh, and it's so cool because sometimes I'll read a book from one of, uh, written by one of my guests and uh, you know, I'll have them on. And then I can ask them the questions that I want to ask them about their book. So it's not just having them read their book to me. Um, I want, I also ask questions that have come to my mind after having read the book. So I get to go a little bit even behind the scenes of the book and maybe find out what sort of person it is who wrote that book. Who is this person? What's their life? And what are, they, what else are they working on? And what are their interests and so on? So anyway, one learns a lot of information that way. So I've learned, I suppose, picked up some information. Plus, um, many of my guests are very, very intelligent and uh, clear communicators, you know, very good thinkers, clear communicators. And so listening to people like that and talking with people like that also, one learns a lot. Oh, that's how they think. That's how they categorize. That's how they express. And some of that learning is conscious and some of it's unconscious. But being or hanging around those sorts of people, it's a formal it's a formal interview, of course, but being associated with them for that, that brief period of time, I, I've learned a lot there as well, I think. And then perhaps being exposed to the range or a range or how various uh, people's experiences can be. Fascinating accounts of childhood and, uh, and, and adolescence and adulthood, etc. Fascinating accounts of religious or spiritual experience or encounter accounts of people's influential figures people that have influenced them and so on this just whole range of interesting human experience hearing that from so many different people so many different interesting people i also find very enriching getting to know it's broad it's broadened my view of um uh, my understanding of, of people I think mm -hmm. also. So those are some things. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. So a lot of in interesting, relevant information, a lot of a diverse sort of broad human experience, you know, having all the guests from different backgrounds sharing their experiences. Um, that's that's really great. I'm I'm also curious about the contemplate or the con let's say the contemplative aspect of that. Uh, a lot of these teachers they seem to be giving some sort of pointing instruction sometimes, even when they speak or what they are teaching somehow, I feel in some instances, put your mind in a different state. Uh, how do you feel about that? Uh, is that something you also feel that you have been exposed to with all of these interviews? Hmm. Well, when you say pointing instruction, I think of two things. I think of, I think of a sort of dialogue process of, or mainly maybe a sort of almost Socratic process of 
pointing out spiritual truths or insights or experiences or something. For instance, pointing out instructions pointing to the nature of mind, for example. That sort of thing is commonly discussed in, uh, say, Tibetan Buddhism, right? But I also think of, so in that sense, uh, that's, that's an interesting question. I also think of, uh, perhaps in a more broader sense, I try to enter the world of the guest. So I feel like, you know, and sometimes it can be quite a roller coaster. I feel like I, I like to use their, use their words uh, maybe as a pointing out instruction into their story and into their world. So in that sense, I think all of my guests provide a sort of pointing out instruction for me as the interviewer going in, you know, and learning about their world and learning uh, the way their world works, the sorts of way they language their world, the way they, the, the rules of their world, the beliefs, the assumptions, the tenets of their world, the way it works, the narrative structure and the patterns, uh, the tone, you know, the flavor of, of that person's experience of their world. You know? So I think in that sense, maybe I'm becoming a bit pretentious here, but I find myself really going into their world. I mean, that's, that's uh, what I try to do. As for pointing out the nature of mind, I don't think um, any of the teachers that I've interviewed, of course, religious teachers often do that. Good teachers of, of a subject have so many different ways, and they're almost always teaching their subject, right? So religious teachers are often always, almost always teaching religion, even when they're talking about their own lives. If they're from that persona, it'll almost always be consciously or unconsciously infused with their religious perspective. And if they're a teacher, then almost always an implication of teaching in it. I think that's what you're saying. Yeah. I'm not sure anyone's ever stopped me in an interview and said, you know, let me point out the nature of your mind to you or something like that. I don't think that's ever happened. Maybe you can remember that happening. Um, but I don't recall that happening. Are they hinting at it? Oh, I expect they are. Will I notice that? Probably not. <laughs> I think that's for the souls in the audience who are, you know, ready. Isn't that what's said about right, those right. kind of instructions? Sometimes they're so straightforward that you only really pick them up if your karma is ready. I think my karma is not ready for such things. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, well, thanks. I think I think that that cover cover the question pretty well. And I think you are being too humble too uh, about you not being ready for, I mean, I think we're already, all of us are ready for some type of instruction from some person at some degree to some degree. Uh, but anyways, thanks for sharing that. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's something I really admire about all of what you are doing. It's, it's something that is very true to you, to yourself. Uh, obviously something you are passionate and interested about and naturally sharing it with others and benefiting others while you do it. So I think finding that balance is so important. It's something I'm always trying to do and refine and, you know, uh, do it a little bit better. Uh, so such a great inspiration for all of us, I think. Oh, thank you. I ought to say really as a follow-up that my guests say things all the time that really change the way I see things. That happens a lot. I mean, I, I don't know if that's really strict pointing out instructions in, in the kind of Dzogchen, you know, sense or Mahamudra sense, but that happens to me all the time. Yeah. 
guests will say something and it's, it's like, wow, especially within the context of everything else they've said. I think sometimes that I, I need that myself very often. Yeah, perspectives or these little pithy phrases contextualized within a relationship, which is briefly established in an interview or within a story that the person's relating. But yes, often my guests will say something to me that I, I go, wow, I didn't see it. I didn't see it that way. And sometimes some guests, almost everything they say is like that. And then, you know, I, I, I don't even try to keep track of it. I, I uh, you know, yeah, just very, very amazed. So yes, in a broad sense, I think you're right. It, it can be very transformative speaking to, you know, those sorts of people. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense. And now jump into a different topic. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people listening to us are curious. I'm curious as, as well. Besides the Guru Viking podcast, how else, uh, what else are you up to these days? I'm mostly interested about sort of, let's say, what are your life priorities and what activities fit in those priorities? You know, what are you doing today, basically? Yeah. Well, yeah, like you said, Guru Viking podcast, that's how we know each other, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you're a podcaster too. And, um, so yes, I do that, right? But I do other things too, as you as you point out. Yeah, I'm, life priorities. Yes, gosh, I'm not sure about that. In terms of working life, um, I uh, do various uh, other things. Uh, one of my main jobs, if you like, is co-teaching with Michaela Bowen. She's an Austrian mm -hmm. counselor and teacher. Uh, she lives now in California. She's a world-renowned counselor trainer, uh, embodiment person, etc., trauma therapist and so on. So we work a lot together and have done for almost a decade now. And that involves, well, it used to involve traveling around the world uh, constantly, teaching in different places, whether it's, uh, you know, teaching in California, in a place like Esalen, for example, or we go to Australia a couple times a year and teach there for a while, or teaching all throughout Europe, you know, that sort of thing. So, or other places, open center, you know, whatever. So we just do that a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, uh, that has become online teaching mostly. Although now as we are in August, 2022, it, it, we're coming back into in-person teaching. But for the last couple of years, lots and lots of online teaching. So it's basically what we're doing in a live workshop as best we can port it online. That's how it starts. And then it becomes creatively utilizing online so rather than oh this is like an in-person workshop but online it's saying okay let's just start from the idea of online workshop and how can we make it unique and special and there are opportunities and things in online that you can't access in in person it's not just a worse in person mm -hmm. um so anyway we taught, taught a lot of online trainings we, tra we train uh people to teach various different things uh we lead them through explorations of relationship embodiment uh, contemplative things also so we do that i have a client private client practice um of uh you know counseling you could say like sort of counseling uh, for certain uh types of clients particularly high performing or um high profile clients is usually what i work with or not although not always mm -hmm. working with uh their particular roles you know relational strategy uh artistic, creative, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, so those things are sort of, they're sort of sister activities. And Michaela mm -hmm. and I often often work in a private context also together or, uh, or indeed separately also. 
So mm-hmm. I do that. Uh, th- that that's what I do for work. I have you know various other things that I do, but those are the main activities. Um, mm-hmm. I think it is definitely part of it. I think it's it's a very super important part of it. In addition to that, I'm wondering. I mean, I I do know about it. I guess already because I've heard other interviews that they've done to you, but. You have also, uh, you have a lot of interest in physical activity, for example, and movement. And I'm sure that takes some decent time of your day, uh, right? So passions like that or hobbies like that, that you also pour your whole being into it. You are consistent in them. I'm also Hmm. curious about those things. Are there things like that that you're doing consistently as well? Oh, certainly, yes. I ought to mention, I should say that at the beginning of the pandemic, I also started a meditation club, Guru Vaiki Meditation Club, we call it. <laughs> and that's, we meet each week on a Wednesday, three times on a Wednesday, you know, three different streams. It's the same class each each stream and uh, for different time zones. And uh, also we uh, do weekend or one day workshops, you know, going deeply into a certain subject or theme. And so this is teaching meditation of various kinds. Mm-hmm. Um, we have also have some online courses that we've done, how to get a daily practice, which is teaches you how to get a daily practice or strong determination sitting, taking meditation from say one hour sit to a four hour sit, we build up to that. What That's a specific nice. kind of sitting, extended sitting. Mm-hmm. Um, and we address that as a particular style. It's not for everybody. In fact, some people criticize it, but it's mm-hmm. a method of practice that some, some traditions have used. So we, mm-hmm. we look at that and all of that's free. So in the pandemic, it was, uh, seemed important to me to uh, do you know what I could where I could, and those that is something that I began. So quite a bit of my time is spent involved in that teaching, uh, meditation, and so on, and that's um, that's all done for free to help people in the pandemic. Um, and other things that I'm yes, I do well. Then if we talk more personally, of course, I like to meditate. So that takes some time each day. I like to meditate. I do like to do physical things, like you said. So that involves sometimes exercising of various kinds, working out or movement practices of a more yogic uh, or Qigong kind of a nature or movement kind method, which is a style of movement that I developed and have some DVD downloads for. I do that every day uh, as, a, as uh, you know, we could talk about that if you like. And um, I do other things too. I read, you know, I study, you know, I study intellectual things. I study languages and things like that. I'm interested in outdoor survival. And I recently uh, attended a one week tracking course. Tracking <laughs> course. Quite, tracking, yes. So What's basically you, tracking? Well, you go in the woods for a week, live in the woods for a week and learn how to track uh, animals or people or people or anything that might be moving, you know. So, um, you know, manhunting, you could say, or indeed stalking. <laughs> You know, stalking uh, animals, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, for the purposes of observing them, or I guess what you do with them when you find them is is another matter. I guess that's up to you. They didn't they didn't specify that part, uh-huh. um, but that was really fun. So we learn how to observe the the surroundings using all of our senses to uh, notice that, notice differences in the environment. How can you tell an animal has moved this way? Or what are the signs? And then having found that, how can you find it? Uh, follow the track through various different means, pace tracking and bounding and other things of that nature. Um, that's uh, very interesting. At night, we would learn to move silently, playing um, games, sneaking up on each other, mm-hmm, <laughs> things mm-hmm. like that. Or we'd learn how to track uh, nocturnal animals or, you know, 
camping outside a borough of some sort, this sort of thing. And so we learned all, or going around uh, using the cover of night to, you know, to move, etc. So I suppose it's a sort of skill that's shared by any interest, people who are interested in the outdoors, you know, I suppose, you know, hunters or people who are searching for lost people, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not a hunter myself and I don't do search and rescue, but it's a sort of core skill for those kinds of uh, mm -hmm. activities. Uh, but I, it, it gave me a, a, a greater appreciation, a richer appreciation, which I hoped it would, of the environment, the outdoor environment, the training of the senses to notice things. By, you know, by a few days in, you, you see so many things that at the beginning are invisible, uh, yeah. you know. And I think this, this is a little bit like, meditation in action in a sense yeah. so i'm interested in that kind of thing extreme outdoor survival or in this case uh you know outdoor skills of various types too yeah. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's awesome such a broad range of hobbies and interesting things you know you're doing that's that's, that's really cool and something that i find interesting as well is that there's there's a sort of a thread uh along all of those activities or, or a couple of ones one it seems to be very, a lot of service-oriented things, either things that are, that nurture yourself or things that help others as well in ways that are connected to you, uh, which I've, I've, I found really interesting as well. And then it also seems somehow related to, as you mentioned, the outdoor survival, somehow it's related to meditation and movement as well. And I bet, uh, there are more things related to meditation, like, for example, in your physical practices. And, well, I read that you are also a musician. Is is that also something you are doing these days? Mm. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Do you play live or do you play by yourself? How how does that work? Uh, yeah, I used to, in my 20s, I was a, what they call a session musician, which is a freelance musician, mm -hmm. um, guitar player. And that involved... Uh, Uh, touring with artists. So let's say you're a pop artist and you need someone to play guitar and drums and keyboards and whatever on your album and maybe on your tour as well. You hire a category of musician that does that kind of freelance musician. And I was that kind of a person. So I did some pop touring, uh, quite a bit of that, playing with artists of that type. I worked a lot mm -hmm. in hip hop. I worked a lot in rock, did a lot of musicals because at that time I was based in London. So I did a lot of musical theater. Um, played a lot of jazz, did some orchestral stuff, movie scores and soundtracks, that sort of thing. Um, so I did a lot of that. Over the years, um, I, I closed the door to a lot of those avenues, especially when I started traveling more for what I'm doing now. I felt actually that I'd, in a certain sense, ticked all the boxes I wanted to tick. Um, mm -hmm. For me, I felt kind of complete in it. And so... Uh, you know, I, I, I just went on to other, I went to, on to other things, but yeah, I still play. Um, I don't play live barely anything, barely any, any at all these days. Occasionally mm -hmm. though, um, something, but very rarely these days. And, uh, but still my music is still used. So I, I compose music, uh, you know, for, for certain things. So that's still used. We use my music in most of our things and recent uh, group series on Netflix picked up a couple of my tracks and used that uh, recently. It's a group series with um, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow uh, doing um, things to do with health and wellness and so on. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's, that's sort of 
thing, but I'm no longer the guitar samurai that I was. That was what, mm-hmm. it, what it was like being like a guitar monk, or maybe not a guitar monk. That implies certain things that are not true, but guitar <laughs> samurai playing, practicing all day, very intense, mm-hmm. um, lots of playing, lots of live playing, lots of traveling to do that. So um, that was a, a very important part of my life for professionally for about 10 years. Yeah. And when you were doing that, did you also have a meditation practice or were you able to sort of bring the mind aspect, all of the mental faculties or skills that you build in meditation, were you able to bring those to your instrument? Yeah, you were. of course. Yeah. yeah. I think any activity of a high level that demands a lot, whether it's sports or art, the arts, or many other many other activities, um, depending on your orientation, these are naturally suggest that kind of full engagement. Body music, for example, is of course bodily. Um, you know, sound is is a physical experience, and the the mechanics of a musician's technique are physical. Uh, also, the expression of music in a performance context is physical too. It's not simply about the sound you create in a live performance, for example. It's a whole body, body, you could say, if you wanted to, yoga, in the sense that you have to conduct energy or maybe command a crowd or include a crowd. You have to be a conductor, conducting, not not necessarily the crowd themselves, but conducting through your own body, Mm -hmm. expression, feeling, you know, energy of that kind. So I think now not every musician uh, is going to express it that way. Absolutely not. So, but I think most, most musicians um, are beyond a certain point inevitably involve those sorts of faculties, whether they describe it that way or not. Uh, it's famous, isn't it? Jazz is famously, uh, you know, used as an example of that. But I think even prearranged music that you know maybe someone else has composed or you've composed previously not improvised can also demand of you that depth of Mm. empty fullness um, and openness and willingness to be you know used plus used in the service of the art plus the uh telepathic communication of being in a band that's also i think quite interesting it's not music is not really solitary when you're playing with others you are locking with them, deep rapport, um, anticipation, unconscious anticipation or synchronization or challenging, surprising, joking with, pressing against each other. All these sorts of dynamics exist when you play music with other people, especially if you play with them lots and lots of times. A lot of the you know, guys I used to work with, we do lots of jobs together and lots of tours together. And so, on. so we have a kind of unit in a way, you know, with some changing parts, but you get used yeah. to playing with certain people and you get a certain kind of sound together. So, yeah, those, I think it is. And then you're in the practice room, solitary, very often solitary, investigating your faults and flaws and polishing them and correcting them, uh, strengthening your strengths, mm-hmm. um, refining and honing your technique, boiling it back down to the basics boiling it back down to the foundations and finding the deeper you go into the foundational, the more elaborate your expression can become. It's kind of counterintuitive. Recognizing that when you real, you think you feel you're getting better, often you're just outgrowing your current level of skill and you can see what's ahead, 
but you, but you, um, so you're dissatisfied with what you've got, but uh, it's actually a, a signal for an opportunity of of of, uh, of 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 something you can actually see ahead of you. So, for instance, as a guitar player, I'd often have this experience of enjoying what I'm playing, enjoying the way I'm playing, and then becoming dissatisfied, feeling I was quoting myself or feeling a bit um, what do they call it? Uh, I can't remember the word now, but when you were sort of uh, derivative, yeah, derivative of myself or my influences and so on. And I just get to that stage dissatisfied, right? Then often you don't want to play the guitar. You don't want to play it anymore because it doesn't feel good. <laughs> so, you know. But if you can recognize, ah, no, actually, this is a sign that um, what I've got has been recontextualized by what's possible. You know, my skill or my art can be, can go further. Uh, or, or go in another direction. So then you go, okay, good. And then you go hunting for the uh, for that open door, and that involves you know often just re-examining your core fundamentals or whatever the case may be, and then finding something. Ah, yes, yes. Here's a purchase. Here's something. Pushing that. Pushing that. Coming into a new place. Letting go of what was before. Coming into a new place. And uh, that process is, uh, I think, quite quite. Uh, Evocative of meditation. So a lot of the lessons I learned as a guitar player and the way I approached it, which, like I said, kind of really intense uh, way of going about it, very, you could say spiritual, if you want. You know, I wouldn't have always said it that way, but a lot of those lessons port directly onto, me, onto meditation, mm -hmm. which is often more of an art uh, than a science at this point. Anyway. You're talking about meditation, right? I was talking about music, but my point is that all of those things, I think, are, they sound, I could easily be talking about meditation, couldn't I? And <laughs> right. have said all of that. Yeah. So I think the link you asked me, it was I meditating during that time? Yes. And you asked me, was I able to bring meditation into the music or was there some sort of connection mm -hmm. there? And I say, yes, direct line, no real separation mm -hmm. um, for me. And perhaps even a fuller kind of meditation practice mm. than than what I that what I'm left with now. Huh. If that's the case, why did you stop engaging that much in in music? Why not, let's say, replace your meditation practice for this very intense, uh, very sort of profound music playing? I think that kind of profound music playing demands everything of you, hmm. and so if you're going to do anything else as well. Um, it's not, uh, it's not quite what I'm saying. Um, so, you know, I started saying no to music gigs and music calls. If you say no long enough, people stop calling you back or they keep calling you and eventually say, look, you know, I'm in the States now, or I'm doing other, you know, I'm not able to, uh, you know, make the dates that you're asking me to make. Uh, you know, you say to sometimes to your loyal friends who call you, you say, well, look, you know, I think it might be time to. You know, find another guitar player, or you know, start calling mm -hmm. someone else now because um, I appreciate you keep calling me. But um, you know, I've said no three times now, and you know, mm -hmm. it's okay if we break up. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, it's okay to start seeing other people because there's a great can be a great deal of loyalty in those situations. Anyway, so when I started saying yes to other things, um, that necessarily meant less space for music. So when I said yes to other Right, right. Uh, yeah, but yes, basically. So when I said yes to other things, other professional opportunities, uh, which I was always sort of also doing, but when I said more and more yes to that, giving myself more and more to that, just mm -hmm. from a, a, a sheer scheduling point of view, 
mm-hmm. um, uh, that involved saying no to musical uh, situations. Yeah, yeah. So that's why. My apologies for pushing in this topic. Honestly, no, personally, I'm not a musician. I think this mm-hmm. is something that, for some reason, most of my life, I mean, music has been in the background. Uh, I wasn't, I mean, I didn't start a meditation practice until six, six or seven years ago. Something that that opened up for me, I think, is the appreciation for music in a way I've never experienced before. Uh, it's quite amazing. And it's quite, now I find it quite also uh, weird that I wasn't that interested into it before. So now I would love to learn an instrument, but at the same time, there are so many other other responsibilities. But, well, I guess I, I talked too much about that. But the point is, I'm not a musician, and that's why I am... I'm asking more questions about this. Um, wouldn't you sort of be able to experience all of what you told me, your experience with music? Maybe not the dynamics, the group dyna- dynamics that you talked about, but you being immersed in the, in, in the guitar, let's say, and learning from your flaws, uh, working with your sense of dissatisfaction, um, being one with the instrument, being the instrument, mm-hmm. being the music and all of these things, wouldn't it be possible to do that maybe at a lower level by yourself uh, without needing that much, that many hours or that much of a, you know, of a support group or sharing group, let's call it. Uh, would, would that be possible? Yeah, yes, certainly. And of course I still play the guitar. Um, and so, yeah, I still access that in that way, but it is much less than what is demand was, is demanded of you when your entire life is, um, essentially singularly available to that artistic or creative endeavor and that performance too. There's an aspect of performance to it, not only performance of technical skill or performance on stage, but kind of, um, you know, uh, you, you know, you, be- you become rather, you become second <laughs> to it, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, so of course that comprehensive um, involvement, you know, is is not I, I wouldn't say possible by definition, mm-hmm. just simply playing in one spare time. But of course I still do, and occasionally, like I said, occasionally uh, I'm still I'm still involved uh, in something musically. But I, but I wouldn't say it's sort of my main you know occupation as it used to be in terms of percentage of my income or indeed. Uh, percentage of my time but yeah i still play the guitar and i still go there you know but it's an echo of it's different now it's basically it's just different you know it's just mm-hmm. different so i think one of the things that has attracted me about meditation is um it's a lot of takes a lot of the same things that i used to love about that i've just described about music and ports it <laughs> into another activity so i think a lot of times we're like that our various interests as you pointed out and activities are, if we choose them and are drawn to them, are, share certain things in common, certain core values or certain core themes, um, which are not always clear to see that they're the same, but very often they are. So I think it's not too dissimilar. Music and meditation, not too dissimilar. Of course, there are very important differences, mm-hmm. but uh, there's, some, there's something kind of similar. So I get a lot out of what I used to get out of playing guitar and being a dedicated guitar person. I get a lot out of that out of mm-hmm. meditation. Uh, I get a lot of those things out of meditation. And I get a lot of those things out of life 
I get a lot of those things out of making podcasts or working with people or doing, you know, I think some of what I used to get out of guitar has broken the banks of that specific modality and is accessible in more areas. That is <laughs> Maybe great. that's the case. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm really kind of, uh, should we say, shooting from the hip here. It's very interesting <laughs> the line you're going. I'm, I'm enjoying it. But um, uh, I, that's the best I can answer that, I think. Yeah. No, that's very insightful. Thanks, Steve. Um, and since we've been talking a bunch about meditation already, and that's probably what more, most people are interested in hearing about, yeah. and certainly myself as well, uh, let's talk more about it. Uh, I'm wondering what got you started in the, you know, in meditation practice, in the contemplative path in general, because obviously it seems that you pour sort of a little bit of meditation and mind into everything you do. So how did you start? Well, the short version is when I was a little boy growing up on the Shetland Islands, about five years old, I, there were two main influences at that time that are relevant here. Although I will preface it by saying, I think, uh, you know, maybe I won't bother with that. Okay. So the two main, I'll give you the super short version, which is I was an altar boy from five and I, we would, I was an altar boy in the early morning mass for some years, actually. And in that early morning mass, that's Catholic ritual, the mass, mm -hmm. There was no singing, the early early morning mass. You know, there's no sort of guitars and singing and that sort of thing. So just the liturgy, just the ritual of the mass with no hymns or singing. So it's sort of quite different, quite contemplative and, you know, peaceful and so on. And that silence and that ritual repetition uh, is it could be a tremendous portal of potential for all kinds of mm. things. And so my mother's influence was strong at that time in the sense that she used to describe it as a sort of private faith should advocate a private faith rather than coming together into the mass to celebrate a common belief with other people. Uh, we all believe the same thing. We think the same thing, etc. We're part of a group, rather an opportunity through the ritual for one's own private contemplative um, activity, whatever that might be, a relationship with God, or you know, it could be Mary, or it could be you know, Chen Rizik, <laughs> whatever the case, or it could be your meditation practice, whatever, right? That mm -hmm. kind of an idea. So I would say a sort of contemplative orientation. Uh, and so that was very profound. And the priest also was a Jesuit priest called Father Hayes, who was also very deep, uh, kind of a person. Didn't, didn't say much, but uh, anyway, very influential. So there was that. And then also that time I began martial arts training, uh, starting karate at five years old. And I just fell in love with it, as young boys are uh, often do, fall in love with things. I fell in love with it. I totally got it. So we do sort of meditation-y things there too, like hold the arm out or... I don't know, probably only two minutes, but it felt like really intense to hold yeah. the arm out, like in the movies. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the training, we'd always sit in Cesar, kneeling on the hard floor mm -hmm. for a period mm -hmm. of time. Or we'd do certain breath exercises when we're very out of breath to control the breath and get mm -hmm. used to the uh, oxygen depth. We'd do that sort of thing. And of course, so I was super into it. So I'd read about it. And then from there, of course, I'd read about, um, you know, karate. Okay, that's the karate part. And then there's the do part, there's the philosophical or uh, religious context of it and so and the cultural context of it so i begin to read more about that and read about then all sorts of things from yoga buddhism mm. you know taoism etc and i i saw that as a whole sort of tapestry of 
fascinating areas that didn't necessarily conflict with each other. I know the different religions and philosophies have different ideas that are yeah. contradictory in many ways, but I enjoyed the, the variety and diversity of it. I didn't feel necessarily, oh, this isn't the same as that. I just, so I loved it. So I just sort of drank all that up and enjoyed it. And so that, those were my, I think my initial starting influences. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's super interesting to me uh, to hear that. Uh, I had sort of a similar background, if you see the structure of it, but very different outcome out of it. I also was uh, raised Catholic. Well, I was raised Catholic. I also went to mass since I was a kid, but it was the the other thing you described. It was a shared belief. Uh, there, the contemplative aspect was missing completely. Yeah. Uh, something that did resonate with me is everything, like all of the things Jesus was doing seemed like the right thing to do. And Jesus seemed like a great guy, you know, like, oh yeah, I want to be like Jesus. But then nobody was actually doing what Jesus was doing, right? So mm. there was sort of a contradiction there. It didn't resonate. I just went because my family went there. So unfortunately I wasn't able to get much out of it. Uh, at least maybe unconsciously I did, uh, because mm -hmm. there are great teachings in, in, in the Bible and in all of the teachings that were, were told at that time, but yeah, uh, definitely didn't see it as a contemplative thing at that point. I also did karate too. Uh, I started around six years old. I, I also loved it, did it for around 10 years. We did say a, a little bit of meditation or periods in silence, a lot of focus on discipline, on yeah. doing it. I mean, always taking a defensive approach, not harming others on purpose, using it maybe to know for, for the right things, whatever the right things are. So, but again, I didn't get that much contemplation or meditation or mental aspects out of it, but I think I did it maybe unconsciously. Maybe mm -hmm. a lot of those things stayed with me. And after officially learning how to meditate, I, I realized I had it in me and that's why it was easier to pick up meditation. But it's, 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 it's interesting. I wasn't thinking at all about nothing contemplative at that point. Um, I wonder if it was the, the cultural environment, which was different. Um, I was raised in Peru and in Lima, which is a very conservative, let's say, well, it was, it's becoming less now, but it was a very conservative city at the time. And yeah, like Catholics beliefs are usually firmly held or firmly held. So maybe that didn't allow me for much challenging those things. You know, uh, I wasn't encouraged to challenge those things at all. Did you have a different experience in that way? I'm I'm just trying to figure out why, even though the experiences were similar, or you know, like church and karate and all of these things, the outcome was so different. Hmm. When you say challenge, you weren't encouraged to challenge. Do you mean intellectually challenge the doctrines, that sort of thing? Right. Uh, yeah, definitely not. Uh, if, if, I mean, I probably had those ideas in my mind, and uh, this doesn't make sense. Why? Then right. somebody elder would say, uh, because it's like that, that's how it works. Don't even question it. And most people wouldn't be interested in questioning it either. So 
that's that's what I meant. There was oh, no support, you know, for for exploration or contemplation. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Well, if I was to contrast it, which which is what I think you're asking me to do, it was the absence. One at uh, uh, one contrast is an absence of doctrine. Mm. Um, so we didn't go, my brother and I, to Sunday school or catechism, which is where they troop the, as you know, of course, they troop the kids off to another room like during the mass sometimes or after, you know, afterwards, whatever depends. And you go in there and some volunteer will explain, you know, go through some textbooks. So I don't know. I never went, so I, I'm not sure. But they'll explain, mm -hmm. uh, or maybe I went once or so, I don't really recall, explain the, the beliefs, what we believe, right? The sort of idea of the catechism. And uh, my mother used to say that, make that old joke. There's a joke about politicians that um, if someone wants to be a politician, that should disqualify them from being a politician. It's sort of, you know, it's a Billy Connolly joke. But uh, my mother used to make that joke about uh, catechism teachers. Well, if someone wants to indoctrinate the children, they probably should be the person who is not allowed to do it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't go, right? So I didn't have that doctrinal uh, thing. So it's just a ritual. Just, and, and, you know, a little bit of framing from my mother, both by example and um, the sort of things that I've mentioned, she said, she didn't say, you know, a lot, a lot about it, but, mm -hmm. and just lots and lots of doing the mass, you know, and what an altar boy does, which of course, you know, but not everyone might, but some people might not know, you go in there and you put on this sort of outfit and you follow the choreography of the mass. So it's a choreographed thing. Uh, you always go through the same sections and depending on time of year, certain sections may change or rotate, but fundamentally it's a preset menu of things that occur in this mass. And so and that involves certain readings, perhaps uh, certain uh, call and response sections, uh, perhaps a, a, a sermon or a teaching mm -hmm. um, short, usually on some sort of biblical theme uh, related to the reading or something like that. But anyway, the experience of the altar boy is, you do a lot of sitting behind the priest, just sitting there in view. So you can't play your Game Boy or read a book, but you're in view, part of the ritual still, but actually stationary. So you're sitting there, not doing anything, not called upon. And then time to time, you have to get up, take a candle from over here, put it over there. Take a cup from over there, give it to the priest. Wait, take the cup away, put it over there again. Now get a candle or a big cross. Now kneel down in front of the altar, but opposite the other altar boy. Mm. Do that for a little while. Stand up. Now walk over there. <laughs> Ring this bell at a certain point. Mm. So you're participating in this ritual, right? Mm. Again and again and again and again. So there's activity and then there's stillness. And there's activity and then there's stillness. And the stillness is as, it's, it's as much a part of it as the activity. So I have very sweet memories of the stillness, sitting there in the stillness. You know. Oh, the priest is talking, doing whatever he's doing. I'm not needed for carrying a candle or ringing a bell or something like that, or you know, cleaning a cup or something. Mm -hmm. And you just sit there, it's just like, wow. Body is still, the head is like open. It's in a building which, which is other, out of time. A good church is out of time. It's not like a schoolhouse or a shop or something like that. The decoration, the statues, the uh, stonework, the stained glass, even a humble church, Catholic church, you know, 
especially, of course, the grand cathedrals even more, but even a humble church has these elements. So you're entering into a sacred place. It's an altered place. So I felt that very, very strongly. But you're asking why did I feel that? Uh, I'm not quite sure why. Mm. Um, but perhaps the sorts of people that were around or the absence, maybe it's the absence of certain types of people, which is more important than the presence of anything in particular. That mm -hmm. vacuum, which mm -hmm. that quiet. Mm -hmm. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That That's very interesting. Um, so I would imagine at that time you didn't have a formal practice that you were doing on your own. Of course, being an altar boy was consistent and formal, so it could constitute as a practice. So after that, you had some practice in karate as well, in direct meditation, let's say. Uh, at what point did you actually pick up a formal meditation practice path teacher, whatever you want to call it. At what point did you take that step? Well, you know, when you, when you read um, about those subjects, which I was very keen on doing at the time, it's inextricable. Martial arts, for example, let's talk about that, is inextricable from meditation. You have things like, um, the high states of concentration that are called for in martial arts training, you know, that kind of single pointed focus, of course, very influenced, isn't it? Japanese martial arts culture mm -hmm. by Japanese religion. And, you know, we can't escape Zen in that, in that context. It's one of the, one of the main influences. So a lot of those ideas are, are there taking martial arts as a spiritual, if you want practice, or perhaps that saying spiritual is almost too limiting, but there is an aspect of it. that's like that. I think everyone kind of knows that. Right? It's almost cliche. So if you take that really seriously in the way that a naive boy does, <laughs> and I was naive, <laughs> and I did take it seriously, I took it very seriously, <laughs> then, you know, that's what you think it's really about. Mm. So uh, I would do that sort of thing. But I think, you know, it's, it's because of perhaps my naivety and my enthusiasm, unchecked, you know, young boys often have an unchecked enthusiasm unchecked by cynicism unchecked by right because you're a little boy and so you just go for it and you go for it in in ways that are unique i think to little kids you know you mm -hmm. go into your own thing so i would do all sorts of stuff of course it's not a formal practice but it's an enthusiastic scattershot investigation mm -hmm. i would say so yeah i occasionally play meditating for sure or i play games of listening so i'd wake up in the morning and add a tv in my room um which I would occasionally march out of my room for some weeks at a time in some sort of ascetic um, urge or so. But I would lay there and wake up in the morning and turn the TV on, and I would try to turn it down right, 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 right down to not totally silent, but just loud enough to hear it. And I noticed that if I tried to, if I, if I had any thinking going on, if I tried to translate what I was hearing, or allowed it to sort of produce associations um, of meaning, then the activity of the of that would drown out the sound. I couldn't hear it. But if I let go of all of that more conceptual, meaning-based activity and tuned into the sound and let it sort of pour in, I found it could sort of just sort of go more directly, you know, directly, and I could hear it. So I would play that game of making the TV just, you know, for the morning morning TV show, just loud enough 
that it required that sort of, I don't know what, I wouldn't say empty mind exactly, but a sort of less conceptual activity going on in the mind, something like that, right? And I would play that game a lot. I don't know why, but I was reading all sorts of things. So maybe I had some, you know, I got some kind of idea about something I read and I iterated it or expressed it in that in that sort of situation. So I do things like that. Later on, um, I was uh, apprenticed to a uh, Christian mystic. So he was, he'd come to Shetland for a little while to, uh, with his wife and family to finish some books he was writing. And his wife also had a, a job there locally in the hospital. And um, I was his assistant. So he hired me to, you know, work, work for him initially part-time and then, and then more full-time. I'd work with him for say about three years or so entering in the corrections. He'd, he'd correct all his manuscripts by hand and then I'd enter those in and we'd discuss things. Now sort of his, you know, run around uh, slash, you know, input monkey kind of person. Uh, but it was also explicitly a spiritual mentorship in an mm-hmm. Elijah, Elisha kind of style. That's a biblical reference of classic biblical reference of mentorship that was he evoked. So it also had that spiritual component um, and some other components as well to do with teaching me a little bit how to think and maybe even teaching me how to navigate as a freelance uh, person in that sense, uh, mm-hmm. in that field. I think I learned a lot there, maybe unconsciously. I also drank a tremendous amount of tea and coffee. Uh, so, you know, every mystic has their, every mystical tradition has their sacred medicine, right? I have ayahuasca, right? or maybe mushrooms, right? But I think the uh, Christian mystic, it's uh, Earl Grey tea. So, <laughs> there's a, you know, but uh, anyway, so th- this was uh, formal in the sense that prayer, I would formally engage in solo prayer and formally engage in contemplative Bible study by myself uh, each day in various forms, which I could describe if, if you like, perhaps uh, I'll just keep going. And uh, so that was um, a formal practice. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's Christian. It's it's uh, Christian orientation, but nonetheless, it's a form of practice. Later on, I had other teachers like uh, Godfrey Devereaux, who was I, I studied yoga with him. He's a yoga a yoga uh, teacher and Zen guy, and I learned meditation with him too. And so there, I learned meditation uh, styles, certain things from him. That's a formal teacher, one of my first formal teachers, and then also one of my main meditation teachers for the last ten years has been Shinzen Yang. So I've done many retreats or attended many retreats that he's done in person with Shinzen. Mm-hmm. He's a meditation teacher, an American meditation teacher, learning his system, practicing his system. And of course, in the retreats, practicing and then practicing at home, learning meditation. And, you know, there have been, there have been other teachers too, uh, that I've received te- teachings from in a greater or lesser capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, Glenn Mullen is another, is another important one. So Godfrey, Shinzen, Glenn, uh, the, the Christian mystic writer, for example. You know. mm-hmm. So uh, I hope that's, there wasn't a moment where I said, now I'm going to become a meditation practitioner. There wasn't really a moment right. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But of course, yeah. greater or lesser degrees of formality, as you pointed out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Such an interesting journey, contemplative journey, learning from so many traditions, but actually having teachers and being intimate with those teachers in those traditions, I think, Something super unique and valuable, really nice. Uh, I, I'm curious about what was your, let's say, goal or intention behind doing all of these things at that point, and also how that has evolved 
I know that the reason why people meditate keep changing. I'm curious mm. about that that thread. How has that intention changed over the years, and what's what's the reason today? I think it's fundamentally the same, which is curiosity, and you know, it's like curiosity. It's like if you fall in love with somebody, and someone says, "Well, why do you hang out with them? Or why do you like hanging out with them?" Well, you can give reasons, but fundamentally, there's ju it's just sort of you know because you're in love with them. <laughs> I mean, there are reasons, sure, but there's also something that can't really be uh, you know reasoned. So I think that's the feeling. Mm -hmm. Life um, is uh, invites it. I find life invites it. The experience of life invites it. The sensations that one experiences being a human being. Mm -hmm. um, physical, emotional, mental, or psychological, uh, even just co and contact with environments, people, etc. All this uh, invites, I think, union, if you want. Uh, this sounds very pretentious, but uh, like I said, it's difficult to explain. But it invites that, I think. Mm -hmm. It would be like living with someone you loved and ignoring them all the time. You know? <laughs> so that's how I feel about it. So I'd say mainly curiosity. Of course, then that uh, takes certain different shades. For instance, in the Christian days, in my most ardent Christian times, um, you know, I, would, I may have said something like intimacy with God, you know, intimacy with God. But, you know, I could still say that, I think. I might mean something rather different when I say the words intimacy in God now, but I think it would, it would still fit. God, maybe, you know, intimacy with this experience, life. But I think it's like, you know, like living with someone that you... Uh, love a very fascinating, wonderful person who, for every inch you move towards them, moves towards you a mile. That's mm. my experience of God. That's my experience of life. Then, uh, you know, that is the experience of meditation too. It's mm -hmm. this tiny little movement we move, we 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 make, but then what's what's returned is huge compared to what we uh, actually output. Compared to what we've done, you know, what you get back is way more than you earned. Right. I think, you know, that's my experience. It's sort of grace, a feeling of grace. But anyway, uh, I'd say, yeah, uh, one word answer is curiosity. I enjoy it still. I still enjoy it. I still find it interesting and compelling and enlivening and mm -hmm. attractive. So I still do it. Mm -hmm. Do you feel, I imagine there are some periods where you are less consistent or you put less time into it, some peers, you put more time. Do you feel how you relate to life outside of the practice? How you relate to people, to other persons, uh, to your work, things are meaningful for you. Do you feel that changes dependent on how much you are formally sitting or formally practicing? Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting. So if we define formal practice now, maybe we'll define it really strictly as sitting practice, right? Yeah, let's do that, yeah. Yeah. So if you, you sit down to specifically for the purpose of meditating for a period of time, mm -hmm. whatever it might be, um, as opposed to, you know, like meditating while you're mowing the lawn or something like that, right? We could say that's informal or some other kind. But yeah. 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 There are, a lot, there are effects, I think, that I've noticed. Heavy periods of practice. If I'm doing lots and lots of practice, I'm pretty consistent. I'm kind of a, I'm, uh, I like practicing. I naturally have a kind of consistency in that. So it's not so much, a, but yes, you're right. Sometimes it's more and less. So I have a minimum, if you want, that I'm generally likely to be doing. 
And then sometimes I might go beyond that minimum if my interest or the space of circumstances of my life create more space then I might do more. And then other times I might collapse back from that expansion, contract back to a sort of more of a minimum. It's dependent on a lot of things like interest, energy level, circumstances, uh, etc. What's coming up in the practice? Often I flee from what's happening in the practice. <laughs> I don't flee all the way, but I flee from deep practice sometimes. Mm -hmm. So um, if I'm doing lots and lots of practice, yeah, sometimes that can scramble you, right? If you're doing a few hours, you know, several hours of meditation a day, um, consistently, yeah, that can be a little, it can make you a little thin. The contact between the world and yourself can become quite thin, mm. uh, can make the personality structure soft. Uh, yeah, in certain ways. So you can become less integrated. Mm. You can become a little less integrated. Yeah. Or maybe sometimes more integrated. Or I don't know. So I've noticed that. So in other words, if, if I find if I do lots and lots of practice, sometimes my functionality is impaired, can mm. be a little impaired temporarily. Mm. Um, what I'm gaining, I suppose, is something else. But what I'm losing is maybe sometimes a little bit of functionality um, or cohesiveness of ego. Ego, I just mean here personality. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of practice can sometimes bring one into contact with stored levels of feeling or psychological material deeper life can do that but certainly deeper practice can do that so that's why retreats are quite handy or taking periods of time where one brackets for deeper practice um, because um and then coming out of that and doing other things so yes i think retreat practice lots of practice can certainly uh, plunge one into those sorts of situations a little bit more is it a problem or not? I don't know. Sometimes it seems, you know, more challenging than other times. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Sorry, I don't want to interrupt. Keep going. Well, I, maybe you'll have to rescue me from my poor answer. No, um, it wasn't. It was I, I feel like I'm saying obvious things. I think uh, it's quite the opposite, actually. Uh, you gave oh. the opposite sort of answer I was, I guess, hmm. I'm I'm used to hearing, which is, the more you practice, the more beneficial it is uh, for yourself and for others around you, more awareness, more capacity to love, uh, more freedom, less, and also like seeing the relationship with your ego or personality more thin, usually is perceived in, they say, spiritual talks as a positive thing, <laughs> usually, you know, when, yeah. when it's not too much, you know, like there's... Again, more more room for everything to just be, for you to just be with, with others. But mm. it's interesting that it's it's you didn't focus on that part, at least on those, let's say, let's call them benefits. Um, I'm, well, first, I'll, I'll let you answer that and, uh, or not answer that, but comment on that. I have some thoughts like why that could, could be, but... I, I'm curious oh, to hear please, from you. Well, please, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, uh, well, a hypothesis. Uh, maybe at some point when your minimum practice, daily practice, is already a lot of hours and most of your activities are very aligned with your practice as well, uh, maybe that's not where most people are at. Uh, maybe at that point, 
I don't know. There are, there's a, there's sort of really forgetting about your personality or ego or transcending it to some point where you actually can function well uh, in things or activities that require somehow that ego structure to be there. I think that's not what most of us experience in daily practice, but maybe when you're practicing a bunch a lot, you're having a lot of insights uh, or you're already sort of stable in that sort of non-dual state, let's call it. Maybe at that point, things change a little bit. Uh, just a hypothesis, but curious mm -hmm. about your thoughts on, on, on all of that. Yeah, that's interesting. I wouldn't say I'm uh, stable in a non-dual state, at least not in any kind of attainment. I don't experience myself as having any kind of attainment, such as um, realization of non-duality or uh, stream entry mm. or, um, you know, awakening mm. or Kundalini rising or um, epiphany of various kinds. Um, I don't think that's, I don't relate to that personally. Mm. So, you know, probably those that, you know, I interview people on my podcast that do claim to be enlightened mm. and they claim spiritual, direct spiritual gnosis, mm. uh, you know, and knowledge of insights of, you know, reality and so on and experiences of all kinds of things. So I don't claim that. Mm -hmm. So I expect, you know, someone who does, if that's such, if that is a thing, then I expect listening to me, they may say, well, this person's not doing this right, or he's meditating in a bad way, or he's not, you know, he just, his practice is so infantile. So I don't know, maybe that's the case, maybe. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, of course, uh, are there benefits to meditation? Um, yeah, of course. Everyone, I know everyone always says that, don't they? When I meditate, I'm more calm. Yeah. When I meditate, we can't deny that many people say that, right? It must be true. Uh, when I meditate, I'm more present mm. of this sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and when I don't meditate for a while, I found myself that to be the case. Yeah. I, I hear people say that all the time. So I think that must be true. Why did I focus on the dissolving um, effects of deep practice? I don't know. <laughs> That's what I thought of when yeah. you, you know, contrast the two deep practices. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's wonderful, but it's, um, it's quite comprehensive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's effect is quite comprehensive. It's not something that I found, I can take deep practice into my life to apply to, so that I can have a better function. Mm. Uh, for, you know, I can keep it. Does it seem that you, you know, you, you, you don't really keep it in the same sense that I'm going to go into deep practice and I'm going to come out of deep practice as me and with, but plus. <laughs> right, right. That hasn't been my experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, maybe, 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 but more loss and opening and softening and recontextualizing those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, is it good or bad? It's neither good or bad. It's just, it's, it's, I'd rather that than the other way though. I mean, I prefer it. I'd rather that, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Now I'm just talking and talking, I think. No, no, it, it's all very interesting stuff. Uh, You're a very kind interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> about what you said. No, I think we're just very interest, interested about these topics. Uh, Oh yeah, and yeah, you have a lot of interesting things to share about them too. Uh, so, when you mention about you don't take the practice, the, let's call it formal practice, into daily activities, uh, you, 
well, I don't, I don't know if you exactly said that, but sort of I got that that sense. It's interesting. Many traditions, sort of that the whole point of practicing formal practice is that at some point there's no separation between formal and informal practice. But like life, yes, is uh is basically functioning in what is let's say an output of everything being integrated or practice and non-practice being one and you being able to function again, let's say, uh, with whatever traits or with less, I guess, self-acquired traits and more natural traits that go along the lines of equanimity and compassion. Most, most traditions talk about, uh, a lot of traditions too, as you already of course know, uh, they have sort of formal, informal, informal practices. So sort of ways mm -hmm. that you can actually keep practicing in daily activity so that mm -hmm. there's no much discontinuity between state of Samadhi or mind mm -hmm. unification. And when maybe actualizing, uh, non-dual state or something along those lines. I know it can mean different things in different traditions, but something along those lines also being able to sort of keep, keep that ball rolling in daily life and not only in sitting practice. I'm curious about how you relate or yeah, how you relate, uh, meditation and practice in daily activity. How do you do anything specific to try to integrate both? You just let let it be, uh, yeah. Wondering what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I ought to emphasize perhaps that I've been answering your questions as personally as I can, uh, not, you know, in any kind of, I don't know, explanatory capacity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's the frame, right? So you're asking me about my own. I appreciate that. And my own. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm trying to do. And so that's also perhaps why. Uh, so I'm, I'm sort of, you know, trying to be very direct about that and, um, uh, transparent essentially, I suppose. Um, uh, you're, you're right. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of, uh, traditions say things like, uh, so, uh, the reason I point that out by the way, is because of course I'm not trying to give a lecture on these sub subjects, right. And, uh, you, you know, we're not doing that. So, right. but you're right. If we refer to that, lots of different traditions have various different means of blending or taking what you get in your practice into your life. So if we take informal practice to mean sitting there doing your meditation practice, you know, on your cushion or whatever the case may be, mm. then, okay, that's formal practice. And then informal practice would be maybe applying a meditation technique when you're doing anything else. So you're walking the dog, you're doing the dishes, you're taking a shower. Yeah. Lots of meditation, uh, traditions have methods to do that some of them are just do whatever you're doing on the cushion just do that while you're doing other things mm -hmm. and so well that's hard to do because i'm doing other things yeah well that's the practice and mm -hmm. you start off with simple activities walking um etc clean you know cleaning whatever cooking maybe and then you build up to more complex activities where you're applying this technique you mm -hmm. habitually uh, or deliberately in all contexts yeah people say that and other people have met another other people take the other traditions take the approach of having a meditation for every situation. Mm. So there's, there's a going to toilet meditation. There's a mantra <laughs> for cleaning the, you know, shed, right? There's uh. 
everything has a mantra, right? Everything has, or you, you know, so some people have that, mm-hmm. that kind of idea. Other people have a radical, other traditions have this radical idea of just dropping all practice, right? Radical non-doing, you know, just, just be and act spontaneously and so on. So right. I don't know, you know, there's all these different styles. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I think from my from my, my own experience, um, uh, of informal practice is, I think na- meditation techniques that I've perhaps acquired in a formal situation bubble up or come to mind or come to body in all kinds of situations and I enjoy, I enjoy that and I let it happen. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like falling in love again that if we use that example, you may have a date night where you're formally relating to your loved one, but then you could still, you know, you're walking along and you, you think of them and, you know, experience your relationship perhaps when you're alone in the forest, walking through the forest, you know, somehow you think of that person, right? And it's there. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're relating to them, even though they're not there, or you're doing something informal with each other. And there's still that relationship and enjoyment that is there. Mm-hmm. So I'd say the con, yeah. I, um, so, yeah, yeah. I, I don't go around. I would say, say, okay, I'm going to go for a walk and I'm going to do walking meditation. Right, right. But what else are you going to do on a walk? Maybe that's the right way I want to say. What else are you going to do on a walk? If you're walking, what else are you going to do but appreciate? Uh-huh. That's meditation, isn't it? Enjoy. That's meditation. Feel, taste, smell. Right. Uh, listen. That's that's meditation. What else are you going to do on a walk? Well, Ignore it? Block it out? I think that's you know? what most of us do, unfortunately. <laughs> Is it, though? Uh, I mean, it, maybe. maybe not uh, most practitioners or serious practitioners, but I think most people who are not meditators or have no interest in the contemplative path, let's say, I think and that's that's sort of the default these days in at least in some pockets of the world, high paced cities, uh people are with their phones, are always busy. So even I mean even walking sometimes, and that's what I used to do as well. I mean, it was just a way to get some exercise and maybe listen to a podcast and maybe answer some, answer some emails while doing it, not appreciating, and not enjoying, not actually walking and being in the walk, you know, um, just being in my head most of the time. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's, it's for granted or like it's, 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 it's the default to do something that is supposed to be the default and so natural. Right. So yeah, so natural, but anyways, um, I, I got your point though, Steve, uh, anything else you want to add on that before I jump into the next question? Well, I, yeah, I, I think every sense experience is, is, uh, is it an opportunity? An invitation, maybe it's an invitation mm-hmm. uh, it, for, you know, for meditation. If we think of meditation as intimacy, feeling what's there to be felt. But yeah, I mean, 
I'm not saying I'm walking around in a state of samadhi all the time, or even ever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that. No, no. Uh, yeah. But th to me, that's what meditation for me is about, really, is that intimacy with life, enjoyment of life. Mm -hmm. And so the more one meditates, the greater life, uh, the more of life opens itself, reveals itself in a certain sense. And so the more compelling it is. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And so then one doesn't necessarily have to. A technique, therefore, isn't a kind of a way of. It's you know just a method of, of connection or communication. Yeah. Rather than uh, rather than the step ladder to the thing. Right. Right. No, I I totally yeah. understand. Uh, I do think, though, uh, and just to add to that. I think some people, uh, or. Some of us can use that method or can use methods or techniques even for those situations where we are so used to not being in our bodies or not being present in activity or maybe you know, so overstimulated by sensory experience from our media or phones or you know, whatever. Uh, I think for those situations, maybe a method or technique even for walking would be useful. At least it has helped me. But yes, yeah. oh, it's certainly very useful. I think it's a wonderful method and a wonderful training tool. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, it is certainly that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm curious what formal meditation you are doing now. Uh, I guess that should have been my my first question. What what sort of practice are you doing these days? Well, my I suppose of course. I don't know how much you know about the people that I mentioned. I learned a lot from, mm. but you know they do different sorts of meditations, and so th there's a whole range really. But one of my favorite ones, a couple of my favorite ones. Now we're talking about formal practice, right? Sitting on the meditation cushion. Um, I really like uh, body sensations. So just sitting there and just feeling the body sensations. That's really nice. Mm -hmm. um, I quite like uh, doing sometimes breath meditation. Mm -hmm. That's really nice. Or any kind of um, enjoyment of uh, or contact with, uh, yeah, like opening to opening up towards sense experiences. Right. So you know, feeling the body, maybe then the sounds mm. will will come in. Um, visual, sometimes allowing the attention to move from uh, sensation to sensation, or having a more kind of global uh, state. Uh -huh. That's very nice. Sometimes tracking the contour of certain sensations, so tracking the expansion and contraction and disappearing of sensations. Mm -hmm. A sound gets louder or, or quieter. Sensation has a movement to it, a pulse or a flow, like a itch, you know, or a throb, mm -hmm. or a tingle in the body. Mm -hmm. We'll have some sort of movement. So tuning into that quality, yeah, can be very wonderful. I also like to do uh, practices of uh, nurturing positive feelings and states. Mm -hmm. So visualizing someone that I care about, and you know, generating good feeling perhaps with some sort of inner talk, mm. uh, inner, inner verbal component, weaving a rope of visualizing inner verbal positive, you know, mm -hmm. uh, phrase, and then some sort of smiling to induce an emotional affectation, those three strands, weaving them together. Mm -hmm. I enjoy doing meditations like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And sometimes meditations involving, you know, breath control or uh, visualization or uh, chanting, uh, etc. I enjoy those sorts of meditations as well. Mm -hmm. So I do those sorts of things, but my baseline generally, what I'm generally going to default to 
is um, just sort of feeling, I suppose, just feeling. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Is that just feeling practice in the lives of Vipassana practice? It's, I can't stop myself to relate those. Uh, maybe it's something else, but uh, where does that practice come from? What tradition or sort of where is it inspired, inspired from? Yeah, I think it's in many traditions. Perhaps it's one of the most basic ones, meditations in some ways. Mm -hmm. In certain traditions, so feeling the body sensations, yes, you find that in uh, many Buddhist lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you find you do find it in vipassana. Uh, sometimes that will involve noting, right? Mm -hmm. Noting or maybe labeling uh, sensations, etc. Uh, other other times it won't require that. A kind of tuning into the body. One finds that sort of thing in certain Zen styles, right? As well, I think. And uh, yogic styles, etc. Pretty much anything, I think. If we're talking about sure. samadhi and concentration or absorption, more or less, many different things can be used as the object for that. Right. And if you're talking about vipassana or of um, kind of you know deconstructing or analyzing in some sort of more analytical meditation styles, mm -hmm. uh, pretty much anything can be used for that too. Right. So yeah, I do, I tend to use the body because I guess I'm quite you know body oriented. I suppose maybe that's why it's one of my favorites, but uh, also visual is very wonderful. Mm -hmm. Sounds, yeah, or inner feelings, inner thoughts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's just very basic meditation, really. Where did I learn it from? Well, I learned that intimacy with the feelings of the body. Uh, that was one of Godfrey's main emphases, and and or or just sitting, without any instruction. So a sort of uh, that kind of style, um, and and then you you do tend to need to quite a bit of time when you do that kind of practice. But uh, I learned that from him. Shinzen Yang, one of my other main meditation teachers I told you about, he has a whole taxonomy of meditation techniques. That's one of his big contributions is mm -hmm. to try to find a way of categorizing all the different diverse techniques of contemplation we see from the different traditions. Mm -hmm. And so, so, of course, I've learned many ways of meditating and many ways of describing meditation from him. He's been profoundly influential in that sense. I was just going to say he has many interesting books, as you may all, uh, taxonomies. Uh, I, I was yeah. just reading one of his books uh, or PDFs, See, Hear, Feel. You're probably familiar yeah. with that one. Super of interesting course. way of categorizing and making sense out of so many different practices and experiences and mind capacities. Very, very yeah. useful. But please, please keep, go. keep going. Well, I mean, that's, I'm just taking a long time to say, uh, say what I have a very basic thing, which is that I learned it from you know, those teachers, mm -hmm. the way I applied, I learned it from those teachers, mm -hmm. Godfrey, yoga and Zen, Shinzen, you know, if you're talking about lineage and influence and so on, he was ordained as a Shingon monk, did lots of Zen training, lots of, he's done lots of different things for passing and so on. Mm -hmm. Someone like that. Others do, like I've mentioned, Glenn Mullen, I've learned a lot from him personally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his teachers are a who's who really of the Tibetan tradition, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. Lingwin Pache, Chuchang Pache, many others. Mm -hmm. So, It comes, I think, from the usual places. Right, right, right. <laughs> that makes sense. So, Steve, something you mentioned that, let's say, it's important or one of the reasons why you meditate is just for your natural sense of curiosity and you enjoy the practice. It allows you to feel more uh, according to what I, I understand, I understood. Uh, how do you relate with activities or experiences in life that could be detrimental to your practice that dull the sense of curiosity 
maybe dull the clarity or the capacity to feel. Um, some examples of that could be drinking alcohol, any sort of intoxicants, uh, or maybe indulging yourself in sensual activity of any kind, you know, uh, binge eating or watching too much TV or whatever things, you know, that are sort of detrimental, that could be detrimental to practice. How do you relate to those things? Yeah. Well, I have two answers. The, uh, if you want silly answer, and then maybe a more honest one, uh, Oscar Wilde said everything in moderation, including moderation. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's it basically. Yeah. But, um, I think uh, I do engage in behaviors as that dull or dampen or uh, diffuse or dilute uh, sometimes, yeah. And sometimes I'm aware of those and others I'm not. There's, a, I think, quite a lot of uh, activity, if I speak very personally, that I find myself in, engaging in which is almost a recoiling from the kind of unvarnished contact with life experience. Uh, that sort of unvarnished contact with life and experience, it, it decimates oneself. There's, you can't hold on to anything in that kind of an unvarnished. It's really uh, feels like that to me sometimes anyway. So yeah. that recontextualizing of oneself. So yes, in order to protect me, mine, even just the experiential um, privilege of that perspective, I do sometimes, you know, do things that are, you know, not sitting like Ramana Maharshi, <laughs> um, you know, in a towel, uh, you know, communing with the universe and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, um, doesn't concern me very much. Particularly, <laughs> mm -hmm. but then sometimes I'll deny. You know, so if I'm doing a practice, meditating, sitting, not moving, you you don't move when you want to move. If you're doing that kind of a practice, it's a style of meditation, right? It's a condition you can impose on your meditation. You might want to move and you don't move um, for a period of time. So if you want to itch, you don't itch. If you're sore, as long as you don't injure yourself, then you know you don't move. If you feel emotional or agitated or something, you don't get up. Um, you know. So that's the other, that's the other way, isn't it? Mm -hmm. To expose those yearnings and to expose those graspings and uh, those recoilings mm -hmm. and uh, dullings that one does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I explore it. Yeah. But uh, see previous answer about not being enlightened. You know, I'm not enlightened by any stretch. Right. Mm. And uh, yeah, but you know, I live a kind of life that is very oriented to uh, my curiosities and exploration. So I think my life anyway, baseline is pretty immersed mm -hmm. in that flavor of curiosity. Mm -hmm. But even though that's the case, of course, I, ex I notice in myself all kinds of things or a top layer of activity, which is, so I feel like, oh, I think I'll have a, like you said, a bag of chips. But then really underneath, I find myself, you know, at the cupboard with the Pringles. But underneath that is loneliness. 
right? And maybe underneath that's fear. And maybe underneath that is, you know, uh, an erotic yearning, mm. right? And maybe underneath that is maybe uh, something, you know, some fundamental alienation, I don't know, separateness, you know, mm. I mean, I'm just, right. So yes, there's a layer cake of, um, of uh, experience that is rationalized at the top level as something quite reasonable, like having a bag of chips or something. Mm -hmm. yeah. I do that a lot. I wonder if enlightened people, of course, I know what the traditions say. I'm well aware of that, but I, mm -hmm. but I'm, I wonder sometimes if, um, you know, I ask that in my interviews a lot of people who claim to be enlightened uh, and come on the podcast, you know, I ask them about their experience and that sort of thing. Yeah. That's sort of, but the... certainly as, what do they say? Yeah. Well, there's a range of things. Some people say that uh, it depends on their view, I suppose, and their ex and maybe their experience as well. Mm -hmm. But what it, what it, what sometimes they will say, well, enlightenment is not about perfection of the character or, or or psychological personality or even purification of the karmic momentum that you know is powering those or is the structure of those uh, sorts of urges. Sometimes they'll say something like, um, you know, I just you know, I have a perceptual shift. Mm -hmm. Enlightenment to me is a perceptual shift. Um, other people will say, no, enlightenment is a sort of liberation from certain craving. Mm -hmm. So I no longer, I'm not, I'm not saying this, I'm quoting other people. Mm -hmm. uh, I no longer have sexual feelings. In fact, I'm incapable of sexual response and if, because I'm so enlightened. Some people will say that. Some people will say, no, when you're enlightened, you can still have sexual response, maybe more tantric, you know, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, in a different kind of context or a different kind of, you know. So they say, basically people say all kinds of things. I think this is, or sometimes they will quote Ken Wilbur and talk about axis, axes of development. Mm -hmm. Well, you've got your enlightenment axis and then you've got your perfection of character axis, uh, axis and then you've got your, right, right. you know, just this sort of thing. And people come up with all this sort of stuff. There are many, I think, diverse and conflicting opinions about it, which... Mm -hmm suggests to me that uh, we're still not quite figured out what's going on there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course, many of the individuals will, with the, with the fervor of the mystic, um, disagree and say, no, it's just that the others are wrong. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, do know, we do know how it works. Some guy many hundreds of thousands of years ago said so. <laughs> and those that, you know, those that think differently are simply not uh, enlightened enough or they don't, they're not enlightened like I am. Right, right. Of course, they say that, but I think it can be a mistake for the mystic to take subjective experience as synonymous with objective truth. So I experience, let's say, I ha you know, that I'm not living in a state of profound non-duality, but let's say I was, you know, oh, I experience oneness. That means everything is one. Uh, no, it doesn't. Not necessarily. It means you experience oneness. Right. I experience um, no self. That means I haven't got a self. Well, I mean, I understand that's. That's a corruption anyway of the no self doctrine, but our I experience the mind is without limit. The, well, or you haven't ha you haven't found a limit. You, you experience no limit doesn't mean there's no limit. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean there is a limit. Right. But this is a mystic's mistake of taking something that seems so true to them experientially, um, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, externalizing that as some sort of objective truth. And that's commonly done, mm -hmm. I think, and we don't need to. Uh, take away the mystic's experience, but I think it's okay to question the objective um, mm -hmm. implications of what, of what they're saying. Yeah, yeah, I agree 100%. I think e even more important than whether or not 
you subdue all the cravings when you are enlightened or you are you perfect your personality or whatever that means for me at least is uh, what can i do about it now in my in my unenlightened state uh so that it serves whatever my priorities are better which is well i don't know could be practice your your service people in your life whatever that is uh so i guess I was going more around that element of it. And so something you mentioned that I think it's, 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 yeah, it's very valuable is just keeping the, the, you know, the habit of curiosity, even in those activities, not taking them from granted, maybe not pushing them away with all your might necessarily, but observing what's in there, why are you doing, what's driving it and what's the outcome of it as, as well. Um, I find that helpful at least, but yeah, I mean, what, what else can we do? Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, you've actually raised an interesting point. There is the view that one should simply experience one's cravings and urges. And, you know, of course those are considered to be bad in say Buddhism, mm. right? Uh, so that, I think that, you know, that's, that's the Buddhist view. So, um, anyway, so your desires, etc. right? So one view is to oh, witness that, observe that, um, uh, and come to know its anatomy and its structure and its habits and how, how, how such urges and things move and how they don't, how they appear to reach, how they sell you on a false idea. If you get this, you'll be happy, right? Or if you don't get that, you'll be unhappy, right. you know, et cetera, et cetera, this sort of idea and see through it by experiencing it a lot, um, and without acting on it, without necessarily getting drawn into it or following the thread of it. I think that's very valid. Other people say, well, you should also, you should not do that. You should, whenever you feel something like that, you should immediately reorient to a positive state mm. and fixate on a positive state. When you get drawn away into one of these hindrances or one of these uh, right. other kind of states, mm -hmm. reorient, you know, recognize what you've done, mm -hmm. reorient to your sort of, you know, object or your positive state. So in other words, incline the mind towards positive states. Mm -hmm. So it's more active, I think, maybe a little less, less of a sort of passive observation of experience, but an acting on experience, mm -hmm. valencing it in a certain direction. These are two, and you've, I think, pointed that out uh, in what you, in your reflection there. Mm -hmm. Those are two different ideas. They can be compatible. We could see them as two different techniques. Um, but certainly I've had dialogues on my podcast between um religious teachers who take each of those positions as their as the correct position and will mm -hmm. rate it right you know they'll say well the problem with your technique is you know you're not you're you're witnessing experiencing all your all your uh, hindrances and so on if we're talking Buddhist language but you're not you know you're not sort of doing anything good about it you're just seeing it a lot you're just looking at it looking at the trash looking at the trash mm -hmm. you need to take out the trash mm -hmm. and you know, that, then there will be this debate and people will say, yeah, you, that's one way, but you don't need to do it. Also, just bear contact with these things can be liberating. So, there, are, you know, there's a whole range of things. That's something else I've learned from my guests is that there's a lot of different ways to skin this cat, it seems. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And uh, Well, in, in my view, it's the best way to try it for yourself and see what it does to you. I mean, we are all, all wired differently. So I think it's great to have such a range of techniques and methods and teachers and flavors. Some of them may resonate with us and, and help us more than others.
Um, anyway, Steve, let's let's jump to the next topic, which is very related. Uh, it's something that I think both of us are passionate about. It's movement, somatics, and meditation, and how all of they relate to each other. Uh, as you mentioned before, you are a very physical person, and you've been involved in movement, somatics, I think most of your life. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you could give us sort of a quick summary of your journey through physical practices. What have you been doing? And I think most importantly, how did you relate at different stages of your life to it? Why was it important to you doing this physical activity? How did you bring your mind to it? Maybe at some points you treated your practices just as ways to fill your body, maybe ways to build muscle. Maybe that's something you care at some point. Maybe ways to keep the practice going and intensify it. The meditation practice, sorry. Um, yeah, interesting to hear. That's a broad question and we can dive deep into different topics afterwards, but interesting to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, I think all, all of the above, perhaps. Physical practice, you know, like exercising or for health and fitness reasons or vanity, perhaps, um, trying to look good, whatever, you know, mm -hmm. um, or, or trying to be stronger for a sport, uh, a competition in sport. You know, I was competing in karate and then eventually fencing. I took the furthest, uh, Western fencing, you know, so there, of course, it's a very different kind of idea. So you're uh, training for competition. Yeah. Training for competition, training for health, training for vanity. Training for meditation, yeah, also. Uh, physical activities oriented more towards its meditative, um, you know, uh, as a meditative platform, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if you want. Uh, some people also, you know, do their practices to regulate their, you know, energies, right? Their chi, etc., uh, etc., et right? Some people have that frame as well. Mm -hmm. um, or... To, you know, re regulate their prana or, you know, uh, strengthen the or um, clarify the uh, the nadis, right? Or the tsa, mm -hmm. as they say in Tibetan, right? The tsa, right? Or move about the lung and the tig, you know, the tigla, etc. Move about the uh, energies uh, in the body for spiritual yogic means. Some people involve movement in that. Mm -hmm. Trukor, etc. Yeah. For myself, yeah, I mean, uh, it's pr probably maybe all, a bit of all of the above, mm -hmm. perhaps. Yeah. You know, when you're training for physical health and uh, there's inevitably mental aspects to it, mm -hmm. which is inevitably the entire endeavor, inevitably, you can't go far without meditation involved there, I think, somehow. It's there. The same stuff that you're engaging with in meditation is right there when you're exercising. So to me, I don't see much much of a difference. So of course, I recognize the difference between sitting in meditation and doing a bench press. I recognize the difference, mm -hmm. but uh, it's fundamentally the same, the same sort of stuff one's working with, I think, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Being deeply involved with the senses, with your feelings and emotions while yeah. engaging. And self-cultivation, self-cultivation, self-aggrandizement, right. self-improvement. These are all motivations, vanity. Mm. Um, insecurity, mm -hmm. uh, power, control, mm -hmm. significance. Mm -hmm. um, th th these are all motivations that apply, I think, 
perhaps a meditation practice as well as physical exercise. It's interesting. I'm not suggesting that I'm actively pursuing those rather Machiavellian <laughs> sounding motivations, but I am suggesting that, I mean, it's got to be in there somewhere. <laughs> right. You know, but there's, I think there's a degree too, right? I mean, yeah. I can tell myself when I was in my early twenties, the reason why I work out was completely different, not completely different, different than a bit different mm. than today. Uh, a bit. A bit. I mean, <laughs> maybe the insecurity driving it, the desire to look better were way higher and dominant at that point. Maybe now it's, it doesn't drive the activity that much. Maybe it's there, but it's, it's not 80% or 90% of the reason why I'm doing it. Maybe it's five or 10% that is there. I'm still working to uncover it more and more. Uh, but it has changed for sure. Um, have you experienced something similar to uh, that sort of evolution of the why? Yeah, I expect so. But I, I think the basic drives are the same, mm, you know. Right, right. Uh, evolutionary psychology would say survival and reproduction. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, I mean, sometimes I'm suspicious of uh, discussion of motivation mm. because, of course, what what I rationalize as my motivation is one thing. Mm -hmm. What I'm willing to tell you is my motivation is another thing in a public podcast. Mm -hmm. And what's really going on is something entirely different. Maybe I'm not even aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say the full spectrum of um, motivations are probably relevant, uh, including the ones that you could say in a podcast and people would think, wow, that's, he sounds like a good person. And the sorts of ones that you wouldn't say in polite company, I expect they're all in there mm. uh, to a certain extent. I don't know. Uh, the, the point is, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's uh, mm -hmm. they're probably all in there to some degree or another over time. Yeah. The important thing, I think, is to do it, though. If one is uh, training uh, physically or in meditation or doing whatever else, uh, then one's motivations and drives are exposed and worked with um, in the in the process of doing it. I don't think there's a, necessarily too many bad reasons to do a <laughs> practice like meditation. You know, uh, a lot of people who meditate, trying to, they're trying to become better, you know, aloof from, protected against suffering yeah you know they want to escape or become so enlightened or so pr progressed that they don't hurt it doesn't hurt anymore mm. etc so a lot of people are doing it for that reason is that a good reason or a bad reason well i don't know it's, it's a reason mm. well, some people they're trying to become better than themselves yesterday or better than others mm. um is that a good reason or a bad reason i don't know yeah yeah i'm not i'm not sure that that's not what the religions are also right. doing Oh, I, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree a hundred percent. I guess it's not that important the why maybe at the beginning. Well, I don't think it's important anyways. I think it's very, it's very important. You need a why, but do you need to know what your why is? Not necessarily, as as you unless you have a motivation problem. If you have a motivation problem, right, right. then one of the exercises I have people do is, um, I say, okay, you want to meditate and you're having a motivation problem uh, practicing, for example. Yeah. Um, okay, let's clarify your why. So I might say, okay, let's write down five reasons why 
uh, five good things that you think is going to happen to you when you meditate. Um, and, you know, they have to be emotionally charged. So it doesn't matter if you think that they're the right good reasons or not. Mm. So you might say, well, if I meditate, I'll be, you know, really uh, present. And so I'll have an advantage in social or business situations, or I won't get so stressed out. Uh, you know, I'll be like totally peaceful or something like that. Or if I meditate, then whatever it is, articulate those reasons and let them be your, you know, what comes emotionally. That's the important thing. But then, you, of course, when you look at your reasons, you might think, gosh, I don't want to be the kind of person who wants that kind of thing. Well, never mind. That's what's in there. And then you say, um, okay, now I might say to them, okay, now do 10. We did this in the Get a Daily Practice course, for example, at the beginning. Now write 10 uh, bad things that you might happen if you don't mm. if you don't practice meditation. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. You know, what do you think? Well, I can imagine not meditating. And people come up with very interesting answers. They say, well, I can imagine if I don't meditate and I think about myself in 10 years' time, what kind of person would I be? Well, and then you'll say all that sort of stuff. Well, mm. I'll be still stressed. You know, I'll be angry like my parent or you know, I'll be um, lonely. And uh, that loneliness will really get to me. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to meditate so that I could get kind of ahead of the tidal wave of, of loneliness. So mm -hmm. all kind of people or anxiety, people have that. So what are the negative things? Okay. And then the third thing is third column. Um, this is a classic kind of, you know, Tony Robbins style <laughs> exercise. Third column is, uh, yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's uh, classic clarifying the why. And the third column is perhaps 10 reasons why you, you can do it. And you might say, well, other people meditate. Uh, I, so I can do it. Um, other, uh, uh, I have done other things that require dedication to, and are difficult and, and staying power. So I know I have those basic qualities. So I'm, you know, so you're trying to then build a bridge as to from the identity of one who doesn't meditate to one who does. So these sorts of exercises can be useful. Clarifying and cultivating your why. Mm -hmm. And then those whys, once, once clarified, can be really rocket fuel mm -hmm. to bring you to the, pra the practice. That is so there are other methods too, like um, there are methods, certain methods in other traditions, as, as you know, mm -hmm. where one attempts to generate or inculcate um, an externally given mo motivation. Mm -hmm. So, for example, bodhicitta is that, right? One cultivates relative bodhicitta mm -hmm. um, uh, methods such as Tonglen or methods such as you know, considering all beings as, as uh as your mother, right, right. Uh, and so on and so forth, and considering the suffering uh, you know, of, of other beings. So there are also methods designed to evoke in you the wish to become enlightened for the sake of all sentient beings, mm -hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think these are also very interesting motivational uh, techniques. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so the why is very important, but um, I think the why is important. It's necessary. Uh, but one's why isn't always very clear to oneself. And that's not always a problem. Mm -hmm. And one's why, once clear, is not always what you'd like it to be. <laughs> right. You know. And as you correctly point out, the why does change. Yeah. Well, that was a great... People hear that. Great take on the why. Oh, I, I love it. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. What were you going to say? Sorry. Well, nothing. Nothing that would add anything. So please continue. <laughs> uh, Oh, thanks for that. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I also find it super important to have a clear why doesn't matter what's the why but to have it clear, at least so that you do the practices and that I guess applies for habit building, even in general, any, anything you want to do in life, anything skilled you want to pick up, uh, all of those things are critical. It seems, um, so if you, if you don't mind, 
I'd like to talk about now the uh, movement slash contemplative method you developed, uh, the Koan movement method. I watched mm -hmm. a couple of videos. I read a little bit about it, but would love to hear your take on it. Sure. Well, yeah, like you mentioned, it's called uh, movement Koan method. And there are a couple of DVD downloads on guruviking.com about it, two, two volumes. Um, yeah, it's like the like the, the name suggests. The movement part is joint nourishing movements of various kinds, mm. um, uh, and also movements that challenge the nervous system in various different ways, such as moving limbs uh, in different directions. For instance, one arm forward, one arm back, mm -hmm. things like that, mm -hmm. or different speeds of doing that, things like this. Uh, there are others too, uh, but, and the koan part is, as you know, koan is is a sort of Zen riddle in a way, or a Zen. Um, setup practice setup in a sense mm. riddle is not the right way to say it really but it's kind of something like that mm. what's the sound of one hand clapping does a dog have good in nature mm -hmm. so on and so forth so these are um you know meditative methods so of inquiry and the uh so in movement cohen method i try to set up these kind of movement cohen's these movement situations um that uh, uh, that we can apply various different lenses of inquiry to so, for example, one of the things we do is we stand on one foot and swing the other leg. You know, stand up, balance on one leg and just swing the other leg in a very gentle way. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, what's that? It's a balancing exercise. Yeah, maybe it's a balancing exercise, but we don't use it that way uh, only. So, actually, what I say is to um, investigate something called minimum necessary muscular activation. So, it's see how much you can relax your foot and leg, the base leg, the one that's on the ground, mm -hmm. without... Um, you know, uh, while still standing. What's, right? So minimum possible muscular activation, you'd be totally relaxed on the ground. Mm -hmm. Minimum necessary muscular activation, there's a degree of activation that's necessary in the leg and foot in order to stand. Mm. So you just try to sort of relax as much as you can without compromising that necessary mm -hmm. amount of mm -hmm. activation. And then one of the things you might discover, so that's the setup. One of the things you might discover is that when you start to relax some, and question some of the layers of tension in the leg, um, you know, th this is very much something one experiences in meditation. But one, what one finds is that the, the tension is serving all sorts of other purposes than just keeping you upright. Mm. So when you start to soften or question those layers of tension, you might notice, well, that suddenly you can feel more. So that the feeling of the muscular fatigue of standing there produces a feeling of muscular fatigue. Um, you feel it more. So sometimes we use tension in that context to anesthetize. Like when you're going to get an injection, sometimes you tense the body, right? Right, right. And so uh, that's interesting to investigate that, the disambiguating the different uses of tension. Mm. Okay, this is for standing, but I'm also using tension as, as an anesthesia. Mm. Sometimes we also use tension in anticipation of future balance needs. So we're bracing in anticipation of needing to balance mm. in the future. Right, right. The fact is that... Um, uh, you, if you if you balance now, you'll be balanced. You don't need to tense and brace in anticipation of a possible adjustment that you may need to make as you balance over time. If you balance now, you'll be balanced. So rather than trying to balance over several seconds, which is impossible to do, um, you can't balance any time other than now. You can't balance in the future mm -hmm. or for the future or for the past. Mm -hmm. of course. Mm -hmm. So that kind of a bracing can occur. Um, uh, one takes baggage of the past into a balancing situation. I'm not a balancer or whatever, 
or one is looking ahead and thinking, I have to balance, say, for who knows how long this guy's going to make us do this for. 10 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute. Mm -hmm. Who knows? I better, you know, balance over time. Yeah. And that's something one learns also in meditation is that the projection into the future and the past of an experience um, of, say, discomfort in the body um, is is not the same as the discomfort in the body. Mm. And uh, recognizing that difference, um, disambiguating those types of experience can be enormously liberating mm. and clarifying and instructive. Mm. So it's a way of practicing meditational things, I suppose, or uh, certainly lenses of inquiry, investigation, set up through certain kind of movements or movement situations. That's really what it's about in essence. And the movement is supposed to be nourishing for the body, able to be done by everyone, and challenging for the nervous system, and you know, enlivening and enjoyable as well. There are other you know, qualities like that. Mm -hmm. But the core, of, the core of the idea is, is that kind of a movement kind. Yeah, yeah. That's super interesting, Steve. Um, I, I, I can relate to a lot of that. I started a handstand practice three years ago, more or less. And I mean, it's balancing basically, and all of the things you mentioned about minimal tension required to hold it. I mean, from a physical point of view, you do need to have minimal tension and the right sort of flexibility for the skill to be performed without wasting too much energy, without overtaxing your body. And then the sense of balancing also, mean, uh, well, moment to moment. If at some point you are thinking about the next moment, you probably fall. You have to be yeah. so present. Or right. if you obsess about a specific part of your body, you fixate on your shoulders, then you miss your the, all of the tension that the needs legs, to be in yeah. the legs and the other way around. And that happens like so quickly, but so often too. I I found these sort of practices so so well rounded, you know. Uh, you get your workout, you get your feel to feel your body, to be very invested in it. But at the same time, you are discovering or exposing a lot of insights related to mind and how mind-body work together and everything else. So I, uh, I'm very interested about, but about your methods. I, I find that there's, well, for me, there's two different ways to progress in my handstand practice. One is to discover all the insights myself, and that takes time and it's very rewarding and sometimes penetrates deeper. But then when I also read or hear or learn from somebody else concepts or insights that I have not already digested in my personal experience, a door mm. opens for me to explore those. And that actually, yeah, yeah uh, that accelerates the learning process by a lot in my view. So that's, that's super, super helpful and interesting too. Do you offer those online or in person? Oh, well, do you actually teach that uh, in person? I guess that's my question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, of course, these last two years have, have been, right, if we accept that, uh, accept the last couple of years. Um, yeah, when that's one of the that's one of the things we do, mm -hmm. uh, Michaela and I, when we're teaching together, we do that, or running retreats, for example, I, or I, if I'm doing one by myself. We might we'll, we'll we'll do that kind of thing. Yeah, we'll use those those movement techniques as well as, for example, if it's a meditation technique. I did a used to run a technique, and by used to I mean I will do it again. But there was a bit of a gap these last two and a half years. Um, meditation uh, movement and nature 
combined. So lots of sitting, lots of strong determination sitting. Yeah, lots of movement games like movement kind method, etc. As well as um, nature related uh, activities, bringing together some of my own enjoyments, build a retreat that you want to, to do yourself. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> and, and then, well, then, you know, then it's, then at least it's, it's, it's like, that's how I prefer to do retreats, if practice retreats in general, mm. is um, practicing with, you know, let's practice together. Of course, there's the teaching role. Of course, there's the holding of the context role. And that's very specific. Mm. You know, here in this interview, we've been talking very personally. And so I haven't had the teaching persona, mm. right, on. I, I haven't had the, here's advice for this and here's advice for that. I haven't been answering from a place of giving advice. I've been answering from a place of exploring your questions as they come straight towards me. Uh, I don't know if that's been successful or not, but it almost inevitably comes to this place of don't really know. Don't really know. Um, a lot of my practice is also simmered, uh, uh, soaked in that mm. of just don't know. Mm. Not really. Uh, there's sort of quite a great doubt in that sense. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't find that to be a problem. I find it to be liberating and quite flexible and uh, um uh, yeah, and very, very freeing, actually, this sort of a doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, in a teaching situation, uh, you know, which is which can be more directive or at least more structured, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one wouldn't necessarily start at that exact place. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we uh, use that stuff in the uh, in live events. But uh, the easiest way, best way to get a hold of it is to the DVD downloads, Movement Coin Method 1 and Movement Coin Method 2. Mm-hmm. Um, I will send them to you. Uh, Andres, if if you like, seeing as you're you're that you know interested in that kind of thing, awesome. thank you. I'll send them to you. Thank you, Steve. But people can find them on the site; they're not expensive. Awesome. So yeah, sounds great. I will make sure to include it in the show notes. Uh, is there any else you'd like to share with the audience, Steve? Where, well, obviously, in your website, GuruViking.com, they can learn about your events, podcast. Is there anything else that you are doing these days that you'd like uh, people to know about? Yes. Well, thank you. It's all on guruviking.com, the relevant things to this conversation. There you can find the podcast, the Movement Grand Method downloads and so on. Yes, there you can find Meditation Club. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can join us on Wednesdays when we do that or for one of our uh, more uh, extended uh, courses. And indeed, you can find the sorts of things I'm doing with Michaela there as well. Mm-hmm. Our schedule is there. Um, we're at Omega next month in upstate New York, teaching there. Um, of course, it's to do with... Uh, lineage and liberation of one's lineage and relational patterns and so on and so forth very interesting using a lot of these sorts of ideas mm-hmm. uh, so the whole range of of what i'm doing can be accessed through guruviking.com awesome awesome thank you so much thank you for sharing your time your experience in a very vulnerable and straightforward way uh really appreciate it um yeah and i hope to talk again soon yes i'd like that thank you very much andres this has been very enjoyable thank you